This morning I want to look at a particular Bible character who mostly gets a somewhat negative attention. He kind of gets a bad rap all the time. He's remembered mostly for something that he didn't do. And it's from that that he derives his nickname. And I'm talking about one of Jesus' apostles, and you probably know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the one named Thomas. And uh, he's better known, of course, as Doubting Thomas. But before we look at his this, uh, this doubting incident, uh, I want to look at a few more references about Thomas that he rarely gets any credit for. There were some good things that he did. I want to get some credit for some of the good things. In the process of uh, looking at these things, I think that there's some, some valuable lessons that we can take and we can learn from them that are pertinent to our own lives today. First of all, let's just talk about some context about Thomas. Um, Thomas in Aramaic means the twin. Okay, the twin. In fact, his Greek name, which we sometimes see in the scriptures, Didymus, right? You've seen that in the scriptures. That also means the twin. So because of this, um, many scholars think that it's really his, his nickname, being one of a set of twins, and that's who he was. The only place in the gospel where Thomas is mentioned is in the gospels. The only place in the whole Bible is in the gospels themselves. And in particularly, he's prominently mentioned only in the gospel of John. Now, there's also, you may have heard, uh, a so-called Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. You've probably heard that. It always resurfaces uh, around this time of year, around uh, Easter time. Uh, it, it goes in the news, and people try to uh, spread it around as if it's some real gospel. Okay? But, of course, it's not a real gospel. What it really is is just a collection of sayings that were supposedly spoken by Jesus and that were written down by Thomas. It's really nothing... Uh, profound in there. Uh, many of the sayings resemble things that were already recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, although there were some things that co- totally contradict what is said in the Gospels. Um, some skeptics, some Bible skeptics, try to sow doubt on the actual Gospels by bringing these up again, especially at this time of year, the supposed Gospel of Thomas. They try to shed doubt on the real Gospels. Do we have the right Bible? Do we have the real Gospels? What about this Gospel of Thomas? But the facts are about this Gospel of Thomas is that it's dated well into the second century, much later than the real Gospels were written. It couldn't, therefore, never have really been written by Thomas because it was written so late. And it's riddled with Gnostic doctrine about it, special knowledge. In fact, for example, the the very first verse of the alleged Gospel of Thomas says this. He says, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. Okay, so you see the the feel of this thing. It's a Gnostic thing which was very popular in the second century. and, And that's, you know, so it was never accepted by any of the real churches that started. Obviously, it was never written actually by Thomas. But it's something that people use to try to throw, cast doubt on the actual Bible itself. The name of Thomas was just assigned to it to try to increase its credibility in some way. Okay, so now having said that, let's examine what the real Gospels have to say about the Apostle Thomas. Just to put a little context in this, we all remember the story of Jesus healing the blind man in the temple, right? The story of Jesus healing the blind man in the temple. After Jesus healed the blind man, the Jewish authorities, they sought to kill him. They tried to come after him. The leaders were questioning him. And Jesus said, you can't understand because you're not my sheep. They got offended by this. What do you mean? And then he says, no one can steal the sheep that God has given me from my hands. Because I and the Father 
are one. And when he said this, they couldn't understand this, and they thought this was blasphemous, and they took up stones to kill him. You remember what Jesus said to them? For which of the good works that I have done do you want to throw the stones and kill me? Which one was it? Obviously, making a fool of them. After they came back home from this incident, Jesus was around with the disciples, and they got word about the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, remember, who was sick unto death. And Lazarus lived in Bethany, which was very close to Jerusalem. So turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to stay in John this morning. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 7. John's Gospel, chapter 11, starting in verse 7. Okay, here we go. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. His disciples said to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone you, and you want to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not, because he sees the light of the world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will do well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, which is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Stop right there. Talking about Thomas today, right? Talking about Thomas, and here's a good example of Thomas. Jesus said, let's go back to Judea. The disciples, oh my God, what are you kidding me? We just barely escaped out with our lives. They were going to kill you, and now you want to go back there? What are you talking about? They were expressing their concern. Don't be foolish. Don't you know they're trying to kill you? They just tried to stone you for blasphemy. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Blasphemy. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him. It would be suicidal to go back now. Why make things any easier for them? Let's just stay away. Isn't that what you would have said? Probably. Yeah. Hmm. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If any man walks in the day, he stumbles not because he sees the light of the world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there's no light in him. What do we think Jesus is talking about here? Is this a parable? Could be. It could be a parable. You know, maybe they won't try to harm me when there's crowds of people around. Don't worry, I can see what I'm doing. I'm confident that God will protect me. Because I have a mission. Amen. What's my mission? To raise up Lazarus in this case. I'm only in danger when I'm alone or at night when they can come in secret. Symbolizing spiritual darkness, perhaps. Hmm. Maybe he was just focused on the task. 
He ignored their warning. Let's go now while it's still light out. Maybe that's all he's saying. Or maybe he means something symbolic by it. It doesn't go on to explain what he meant here. But in verse 11, we see, we see his heart. We see he's trying to be very gentle as if he's talking to little children. We see the compassionate heart of the Father. He said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. Being very gentle with them. They didn't understand. Oh, if he's sleeping, then that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. But then Jesus had to tell them very plainly, Lazarus is dead. He was forced to be blunt at that point. And for your sake, he said, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I'm sure they didn't know what he was talking about here either. He was alluding to the plan of resurrecting his friend, right? Had he been there, Lazarus wouldn't have even died at all. But now, this is a way that people could see an incredible miracle to increase their faith in God. Even though he was dead, we're still going there. Now look at verse 16 again. Then Thomas, which is called Didymus, the twin, right? Said to his fellow disciples, let's also go with him that we may die with him. Now, although this is very pessimistic, it does seem that Thomas was stirred up here with some courage. Again, albeit pessimistic courage, but he was stirred up with some courage. Uh, He shows leadership here. He shows uh, an inspiration to the other disciples. None of the other ones stood up and said, let's go with Jesus. Let's take care of this. Only he stood up and he said, okay, I'm strong with Jesus. I'm going to go. I'm showing my dedication. I'm also showing some courage. Let's go, guys. Let's go with Jesus. Even though there's danger here, let's go and follow him. That was Thomas. That was Thomas. How can we apply something like this to our lives? How can we take this story, apply it to what we do? Now, how many times are we faced with an uncomfortable or maybe even a dangerous choice because we follow the Lord? It happens to us, doesn't it? We're faced with uncomfortable, maybe even sometimes dangerous choices because we choose to follow the God, follow our God, stand up for what is right. Act like the one with the highest moral standards. How many times has that gotten you in trouble? How many friends have you lost with that one? Stand alone when everyone else thinks you're wrong. Stand alone when everyone else thinks you're crazy. Just like Thomas in our story here, we need to be courageous and follow where the Holy Spirit leads, even if we really don't know what the outcome is going to be. So yes, Thomas could be courageous, but he could also be someone who is honestly seeking answers. So we're going to see in our next scripture here. Go forward to John chapter 14 now. John 14. Another familiar portion of scriptures here in verse 1. Familiar portion of scripture to most of us. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, so believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not where you go. 
How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from hereafter you know him and have seen him. Now just prior to this, in the last chapter, Jesus told of his impending death. He told them he was going to die. The end was near. He just explained how Judas was the one who was going to betray him. But look how he opens up this verse. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. Words of comfort from the Lord. It's good that you believe in God, but now put your trust also in me. And in verse 2 and 3, he, he subsequently gives an allusion to heaven and to Christ going there. It's one of the relatively few pictures of heaven that we actually see in scriptures. It's spacious. It's secure. There's many mansions. There's places for you to go. It gives us this feeling of security, spaciousness. Building again on that image of comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. Would I have told you this? In other words, you think I'm lying to you? You know I'm not going to lie to you. Again, trust in me. Verse 3 is referring to the end times when the Lord will return and you will be with me. You will have this comfort. Verse 4, where I go you know and the way you know. And then here's Thomas again in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We saw that Thomas was a man of courage, but now we see here that Thomas is also a man of sincere seeking after the Lord. Thomas doesn't get it, but that's okay. I'm sure none of the other ones got it either. Peter asked similar questions uh, when Jesus said, where I'm going, you can go. And Peter said, where are you going, Lord? I'm sure the rest of them didn't get it either. But an honest seeking apostle, Christian person, is who God is after. Because those are the people he can speak to in their hearts. There's many times during the course of our lives when we just don't get it. Amen. Happens to me. God, what's going on, God? We know many times that God's ways are different than our ways. He does things the way he sees fit. Still, God wants us to know him and to learn of Him. He's never going to turn aside an honest seeker, someone who wants to know. And that's exactly how we grow spiritually. Ask Him questions. That's fine. I'm sure, the other, again, like I said, the other apostles didn't get it either, but Thomas wanted to know. He wanted to learn. He brought it up before the Lord. He was more than just a doubter. And then Jesus gives him the answer in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We just discussed this recently, I think a few weeks ago, the exclusivity of this answer from Jesus. Not one way among many, but the way to God. But notice here that he does not scold Thomas. It's okay to ask. But do so honestly. It's okay to ask. Many times people think, you know, we live in doubt and unbelief, but it's okay to ask the Lord questions if you're sincerely looking to Him for an answer. He's our teacher. Holy Spirit teaches us. 
And again, we see this claim to divinity. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. From hereafter you know him and have seen him. Hey guys, you know me. So now you know the Father because we are one. Now let's move forward. John chapter 20. Probably the most famous verse about Thomas. John chapter 20, 2-0, 20. John chapter 20. This was after Jesus had been resurrected. And the women, if you remember, the women had come back and spoken to the apostles and said, we saw the risen Christ. We've seen him. He's alive. What did the apostles say? Remember? What are they, crazy? What are they, crazy? They're out of their minds. We saw him get killed. Remember? All right. Let's look in verse 19. Chapter 20, verse 19. And that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed to them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them, Peace be to you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not there when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I shall see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. Here it is. This is the thing that he is remembered for. This is it. This was the very night of the resurrection. The very night of the resurrection. Jesus stood in their midst, it says. The Jews were assembled in verse 19. They, they, the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled. Why? For fear of the Jews. The doors were locked. For fear of the Jews. The disciples were naturally afraid for their lives. Hey, you just saw what they did to our leader. What do you think they're going to do to us? Of course they were afraid. Look what they did to him. And now Jesus shows up and tries to calm their fears. He says, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Naturally, they were afraid. This was also a very common Hebrew greeting, kind of like the hippies in the 60s. Peace, you know. This was a very common greeting. Peace be unto you. They may have been afraid that Jesus was going to scold them for deserting them and for running scared, right? They might have been afraid. But they were also afraid of the Jews. In verse 20, he proves to them who he is. How? By physical evidence. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at me. It is me. Physical evidence of who he was. This is not a vision. This is not a ghost. This is Jesus' body risen from the dead. 
albeit a resurrection body. It's a little different. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. A little bit different. It's able to float through the walls and stuff. No wonder he had to say, peace be to you, right? <laughs> Proof that Jesus was not just a spirit who rose from the dead, but his actual physical body. Verse 21, he tells them, as the Father have sent me, even so now I send you. He's telling them, I have completed my mission here. Now I'm going to give you a mission. And it's a very important mission. He's going to tell them to receive the Holy Spirit. They certainly would need the power of the Holy Spirit to handle the mission that they were being sent on. And that power of the Holy Spirit is still available to us today because we are still on that same mission. We don't want to drop the ball. In verse 22 there, he says, he said to them, and he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Ghost. In the Septuagint, the the early Greek translation of the scriptures, back in in Genesis, when God breathed life into Abraham, this is the same word that's translated here. As he breathed life into into Adam, excuse me, breathed life into Adam, he's also breathing the Holy Spirit into them, breathing new life into the people. Like when we received the Holy Spirit, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit, and so do we. Verse 23, Whosoever sins you remit, you have remitted to them, and whoever sins you retain, they are retained. I struggled with this, and this was a very difficult passage. And as I was researching it, there was a lot of confusion about this passage. It was very difficult to understand. How could the disciples forgive sins? And the best answer that I probably found had to do with this. And it said that what they're really doing is giving an assurance of the forgiveness of sins by God. In other words, they're standing in God's place and saying, if you have asked for forgiveness for your sins, yes, it's true. God has forgiven you. It's an assurance that they're giving. Not that they themselves are giving the forgiveness, as it seems to be saying here. But now look in verse 24. And here's Thomas again. Thomas, one of the twelve, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came. We're not told where, G- where Thomas was. We don't know why he left. Where did he go? We don't know. They were all locked up in the room. They were afraid for the Jews. Where did he go? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But that's okay. That's okay. He said to them, except I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. In Greek, this is very strong language. I will not believe. Sounds like he was being stubborn, right? But it also sounds like he's being very cautious. And that's not always a bad thing, especially when it comes to matters of such importance. We don't want to be fooled either. In spiritual matters, things about God, people come and they might try to teach you something. You don't want to be fooled. Being suspicious is not always a bad idea. But look at what he's doing here. He's limiting himself to any type of evidence other than that which he actually saw himself. And that's dangerous. That's not something that he or anyone else should really do or would normally do. Think about this example. I know who my parents are. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't exactly remember seeing them when I was being born. Right? So how do I know who my parents are? Because they told me so. Right? I mean, if I wanted to, I can go and look back in the medical records and the hospital records. I could find out. Right? And get some documents. Later on, other relatives, you know, they knew this is your parents, this is your parents, this is you, this is your parents. Other people also said it. But I didn't see it when I was coming out. I don't know that these were my parents. These days you can even do tests, right? DNA tests and other tests. You can find out who your parents are. If I wanted to do all that, I could do it. But what are we looking at here? We're looking at the trustworthiness of the people who told me, right? We're looking at, are they in a position to tell the truth? What would they benefit from by lying? I mean, am I that great that somebody's going to want me instead of somebody else? No. This is your parents. Are they in a position to be trustworthy? Do they have any reason to lie about it? Would they gain any benefit from lying? I could look at the documents and the, the evidence. I can hear the evidence from other people, other relatives. Now look what happened here. We stopped in verse 25. Let's look at verse 26. 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and behold my hands. Reach here your hand and thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed. A whole week had passed by. A whole week had passed by for Thomas to think about what the disciples had said to him. To wonder why Jesus never came around when he was there. What was going through Thomas's mind? Notice here again that the doors were locked still. Why do you think John included that detail? To show that they were afraid for their lives? Still? Maybe. Maybe. But more so, I think, to highlight again that supernatural nature of Jesus' resurrected body. And then in verse 27, he comes and he challenges Thomas. Okay, you wanted to see me, Thomas. Well, here I am. Here I am. It's as if he came there mainly just to convince Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Here I am. We don't ever want to be that spiritually gullible. But at some times, the facts should sway us. Or in this case, the facts should overwhelm us. And Thomas then went on and said, My Lord and my God. He realized who he was. My Lord and my God. His heart changed and he realized who he was. He was totally convinced and he said so. The extreme, extreme expression of worship here. My Lord and my God. Notice here, he didn't even have to touch him. He just saw him. He didn't even have to go and touch him. By sight only, he made the connection and he realized who Jesus was. Then Jesus affirms a faith 
that is indirect. A faith that happens without the senses. Not talking about a blind faith, but I'm talking about a faith for good reasons. Faith coupled with reason. Thomas wanted physical proof. But he needs to realize, like we said before, that there's many different types of proof. You don't always, it's not always possible for us to witness something firsthand. There are other people that are eyewitnesses. And their testimony can be valuable proof if they prove to be reliable. Again, are they able to know? Do they have an ulterior motive to lie? Are they of good character? We don't necessarily have to see something ourselves for something to be true and believable. We see that Thomas was a devoted and courageous follower of Jesus. When all the disciples were afraid to go back to Jerusalem and see Lazarus, what did Thomas do? It was Thomas who aligned himself with Jesus. Even though he was pessimistic and he thought that he would end up being killed, he devoted himself to Jesus, and he was courageous enough to stand up when the others didn't even do it. Thomas. We find out that he's a man of honest seeking. It's okay to ask the Lord questions. Thomas wanted to know where Jesus was going and how to get there. He wasn't provoking Jesus. He wasn't trying to question his authority. It was an honest question from a seeking heart. And God wants that. He wants us to care enough to seek him out, doesn't he? He doesn't expect us to ride on the coattails of someone else's feet, but to find out for ourselves. Then we see the famous Doubting Thomas. The man who refused to accept the testimony of others who had seen the risen Jesus. But the doubting Thomas turned into the faithful, believing Thomas. And that's the good news. Wouldn't that be great to be said of all of us? You were doubting, but now you're the faithful and the believing. He came to realize that there's things that can be true even if you don't witness them yourself. When you look at it, Thomas wasn't any more doubting than any of the other disciples. Remember, they didn't believe the women when the women came with the news of the risen Jesus. They thought the women were crazy. But they had the benefit of seeing the risen Jesus before Thomas did. And then Jesus said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. Because, and, and blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I have a quote from a pastor, Wendell Gann, who said this. He said, Jesus said that the testimony of trustworthy eyewitnesses should be sufficient to make believers that such people would be blessed. Tradition tells us that later on, Thomas was eventually led to ministry in India, where he lived there, and he led many others to Christ. He was eventually martyred for his undying faith in Christ. Not too bad for a man who was forever known as Doubting Thomas. But that was just part of the story, right? 